Hello and welcome to another Bioprocess Insider Expression Platform podcast. My name's Dan Stanton and I am the editor of Bioprocess Insider. This week, we are launching something quite special. With me is Anna Brown, the digital content producer here at Informa Connect Life Sciences, who's going to tell you a little bit more about Voices of Biotech. Hi, Dan. Voices of Biotech is going to be a new podcast that we're launching with the aim to celebrate diverse leaders that are driving change within the life science industry. So I'll be hosting some of these interviews and discussing with these key female leaders how the industry is evolving, what progress has been made so far and what more can be done to create gender parity within biotech. And it's no coincidence that we are launching this on the 11th of February 2023, which we should all know is the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. So in our first episode, we are joined by Deepa Tabide, who is the Vice President of Business Developing and Licensing within Oncology at Bayer. So in this discussion, she talks about Bayer's new IND Accelerate program, which was launched by Marianne de Bacca a few years ago to promote diversity within Bayer and open new opportunities for their colleagues. Now, you mentioned you have um, several more speakers coming up focused on the diversity and inclusivity side of the biotech industry. What are you hoping our listeners will get out of these conversations going forward? Yeah, we've got a few great women speakers lined up who are going to be joining us on this podcast. And what you can expect to hear from them is them sort of dive into their complex careers, learn about the challenges that they've overcome to get where they are today, and some of the more new initiatives that we need to take forward to kind of push diversity within the biotech industry. And with that, I hand the reins over to you, Anna. This is Voices of Biotech. Happy listening. Welcome, Deepa. It's um, lovely to have you here today. I'm delighted that you could join us, and I hope you're excited to be here. I am, and thanks for having us, Anna. So I understand that currently that you're working at Bayer now as the Global Head of Business Development and Strategic Alliances within Oncology. But before we kind of delve into your career at the moment, and you have a long and impressive history of working within business for, across the pharmaceutical industry for many years. So I thought that maybe we could just start at the beginning and you could just tell me a bit about the start of your career. Sure, happy to. So I'm presently at Bayer. I lead the oncology efforts at Bayer, both from a business development and strategy perspective here. Um, but I came to Bayer about two years ago, mm-hmm. just over two years ago. Um, and I came from Mark Sharpen Dome, which is uh, another pharmaceutical company that is well known for its uh, vaccines, um, oncology, PD-1 revolution. Um, and in there, um, uh, I was doing business development across various therapeutic areas, uh, more on the transactional end of things. Um, and we've, you know, we we've had the privilege of doing some very strong collaborations, acquisitions, and app licenses from that perspective as well. I came to Mark through an acquisition of Sharing Plow that Mark did, and before that, Sharing Plow was a acqui- uh, Sharing Plow acquired Organon. Um, so it's a I, I was sort of the fruit of my own interests in terms mm-hmm. of two serial acquisitions led me from Organon to Sharing Plow and then into Mark. Um, 
Each company was different in culture and size, um, some therapeutic interests overlaps, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But it it gave me a, a real taste of change every few years. Um, and adaptability was really important through those transitions. I've done uh, clinical development work uh, back in my early days and some commercial role right then, more in the neuroscience CNS space, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But business development, uh, which came about as a result of me working on a program that got finally partnered, actually, with another big pharma uh, and the BD team picking me up from there, um, came about pretty early as well. Um, I enjoy the concept of BD because it brings all your uh, all the different functions to the fore and and sort of interconnects all the dots that you know about. Um, and it's never boring, right? Every day <laughs> is a new day in business development. So you have manufacturing, you have commercial, you have the financial aspects, you have the science, you have innovation, you have to figure out how people can work together, you have legal. Um, it's a fascinating array of things that comes together. And for many, many um, folks who enjoy enjoy the cross-functionality of our lives and business and science, uh, this is a fantastic career for those of you who who might consider it. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to to, to sort of industry, I did my PhD at Emory University. um, And before that, I was at St. Xavier's uh, in Mumbai, India. That's where I did my undergrad. I also caught up and got an MBA right after my PhD because my interest started shifting towards um, the business side of things. And childbearing kind of came in the way, Anna, which is a Mm. a whole different story as well. But that's sort of the road to where I am today. Thank you for that. That was a nice summary of a very impressive career. Um, So you spoke about sort of how you had your undergraduate in India. And so this is where you primarily had your education. Is that correct? Yes. My so my school years were there and then all my graduate schooling was in the US. How did you find sort of the difference between studying in India compared to then going to the US? I mean, that's a great question, although, you know, I came here for graduate school. A PhD Mm -hmm. is different from your earlier years. Um, Mm -hmm. So that in itself whether you do your PhD in India or you do it in the US should be a different field. It's where you are searching, you're driving your own work, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to getting into coursework and finishing a credit load. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think the the um, the style of teaching is far more, it puts the onus on you uh, to be the driver of your own um, research to be the driver of your own interests, um, which is fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is, of course, there was a cultural shift coming to the U.S. at that point, uh, but many people do, right? They move countries. Um, mm-hmm. One of the key things that helped was I came from Bombay, which is a big city in India, um, so the gap is a little bit leaner. I was terribly homesick for a while, mm-hmm. um, but um you know, and, and had to learn some of the Western ways of living alone quite quickly 
I had some yeah. fun, fun uh, battle stories there. But um, <laughs> overall, uh, superbly uh, appreciative, frankly, of the style of education graduate school in the U.S. gave me mm. at that time. Um, I'm sure things are changing even as we speak. Yeah, it's funny that you kind of mentioned that sense of adaptability again with, you know, moving to the U.S., which is also what you mentioned that you found the start of your career as well so that's quite a nice link of a lot of change that you've had to overcome or you know have experience throughout your career yeah and it's a good thing you should always challenge yourself with some changes every so often if you so if you are so inclined right some folks don't enjoy that Um, Mm -hmm. but change allows you to grow it allows you to learn things about yourself that you really didn't know um, and it's it's like quite up the evolutionary path, I would say. Definitely. I think it's always important to challenge yourself. Just going back to how you mentioned that you have experienced a lot of different therapeutic areas throughout your career. Was there any in particular that you especially enjoyed or that you found challenging? Sure. I mean, look, I enjoyed several therapeutic areas. That's like asking you to pick um There's no reason for you not to enjoy if you get deeper into an area and you Mm -hmm. actually understand what patient needs are not yet met by the current science and the therapies. Science is always fascinating. And then on the flip side, patient needs are always urgent. Right. So Mm -hmm. if you if you marry the two, it's a rare area that once you dig deeper into would leave you untouched. So that's sort of a primary generalization I would make here. Um, but, you know, lifestyle disorders attracted me less. But what two two things drove me very deeply and early in my life, I had um, a close friend that passed away due to cancer mm-hmm. at the age of 10. Um, and I was her buddy for three years as she suffered through it. There were almost, you know, very limited therapies at that time. Um, mm-hmm. And her memory, you know, still strikes a very bright chord in my own sense of why we have purpose. And I lost uh, a dear aunt to early Parkinson's after a lot of suffering again. Death is inevitable, right? It's Mm. the question of what it does to your quality of life and when. Um, Mm -hmm. And both these, one is a neurodegenerative disorder, one is, um, you know, cancer in its uh, young form. Um, mm-hmm. left left uh, an indelible mark on me. So those two would be key areas as well, though um, immunology and vaccines where I've had some therapeutic uh, expertise in, in terms of uh, transactions are also incredibly important, the autoimmune field and infectious disease, right? The world needs these things to develop and you can't help but be uh, drawn into them. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's amazing that you've kind of, obviously, it's very unfortunate that you've had those personal experiences, but it's very, you know, it's incredible that you're able to sort of channel that into your work. And there must be sort of a sense of it feeling rewarding to you as well, knowing that you're putting all your energy into pushing those therapeutics to help those people and those patients. Yeah, I mean, people have have far uh, worse stories of why they do what they do. The point being, y- you've got to find, and I'm just speaking in general to 
um, young people, right, which is you've got to find what your passion or yearning or interests is and sort of marry it to some purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. find your yearning, marry it to some purpose, and then every day becomes far more um, meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. Be that literature, be it science, be it whatever. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think just touching on sort of young people's ambition and kind of going back to education, how do you feel that the space is at the moment in terms of supporting young girls to pursue, I guess, specifically in this case, a scientific career or one that's maybe more business led. What do you think that that sort of space is looking like at the moment? Do you think we could be doing a lot more? Well, I mean, um, I've been lucky to have uh, two kids, one a boy (laughs) and one a girl. Um, So I watch the space. um, Mm. And you could always be doing more, but you mm-hmm. also need to be careful that you do, don't disenfranchise some somebody who doesn't happen to fit your definition of diversity and inclusion, right? So mm-hmm. we we want to get all our young people, regardless of gender, shape, color, way of thinking, the right opportunities. And there should be a big push towards that. Um, we have things like uh, Girls Who Code that Kim is very familiar with, uh, Anna, and, you know, things where we are bringing women, young women, right, into computer science, the um, the fun of coding, the fun of technology. Um, yes. Several times academic institutions have small grants to encourage women to travel, to go to conferences, etc. But I don't know... Um, uh, and I think we've been lucky in some ways in the biological sciences at a minimum, um, the gender ratio is decent in the young years. Mm-hmm. Um, where I think you start hitting um, a somewhat of a ceiling is probably these childbearing years, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Professors have to go on to doing, so graduate students have to go on to doing postdocs. Postdocs have to do repeat postdocs before they get early professorial tracks. Um, similarly with um, corporations, right? Inevitably, childbearing could interfere with the early movers and shakers in the corporate world. So some of these things have to be resolved um, more fundamentally, perhaps think very deeply about the flexibility you give women in their childbearing years, think very carefully about what that flexibility means in terms of re-entering mm-hmm. the workforce. I don't think we've solved all those and they're not easy to solve. So yes, of course, that needs attention. And here I'll come to this concept of saying, you know, socioeconomics and cultural ecosystems play a real role. So I would argue that, you know, decently off socioeconomic societies are giving girls a fair place, the mm-hmm. young girls, right? I would argue yeah. that although although even there, we have to be careful that parental biases and teacher biases don't creep into, into their brains too early before they form an understanding of where they want to go, right? Because mm-hmm. biases are picked up by young people. Uh, if, if a young girl hears that, wouldn't you like to have a white picket fence and three kids all the time, 
that may be what she desires at the end of the day. And there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. It's just that she should hear both sides of the story. She should mm-hmm. also hear the CEO woman's story and the gorgeous mother who's having the three kids and the white <laughs> picket fence. And sometimes you get both. It's darn difficult, but, you know, things like that. Yeah. They should hear all all possibilities and then let them pick their point. The issue is with socioeconomics being hard hit. That's where you really see women and girls suffering, right? They they carry the load, they carry the brunt, they carry the choices of parents choosing one kid's education over another kid's. Certainly rural India, U.S., parts of the U.S., I mean, nobody's immune to it. Um, Across the world, socioeconomics is a big deterrent of trying to help girls reach their full potential. So we need to be really much broader in our outreach to get these young women from backgrounds that are less privileged and allow them to have exposures earlier in their academics and in their corporate careers. Okay, so these kind of initiatives, I guess, that you're talking about the need to happen are required in the early stages of women's careers in order for them to kind of have that progression and have the opportunity. Absolutely. And that kind of leads me almost onto this initiative and program that's happening at Bayer that I know that you're involved in. Can you give us a bit of background about that and explain just to the listeners what this initiative is? Absolutely. Um, It's a real jewel of a program. It's a small program. Um, It's called the Inclusion and Diversity Accelerate program, IND Accelerate program. Um, And basically, uh, you know, we post for this concept of um, short-term assignment in our business development, extended business development team, a couple of times a year. And people can apply within Bayer, be it women, people with some diversity uh, aspect or some interest, frankly, in BD, and be considered for a six to nine-month role um within the business development team if they're interested in bd right uh, mm-hmm. so so in this case it's sort of a doubly beneficial program beneficial for the participant that comes into the bd team for 6 to 9 months and then in our team uh, we're exposed to a diversity of mindsets um and it allows us to work with people that might have come freshly from a specific function be it r and d be it market access um and that changes, um, you know, the richness of our own little teams. Um, mm-hmm. This was started about two years ago, Anna, um, mm-hmm. and I believe you're going to meet Ilona Gucha, one of the participants in that program. And we've yes. been absolutely amazed by by Ilona's um, entry into BD and her growth and contributions at this stage. Um, mm. So it's it's a really nice jewel of a program and I must credit Marianne Dibaka who who had the uh, vision to begin this at Bayer um, yeah. and it's both for women and a diversity of mindsets frankly. So this program's situated within the business development sector of Bayer why did this kind of grow within this department specifically? Well I mean uh, to be a little transparent. I mean, Marianne started this, right? This was her vision. Yeah. Um, 
Um, and we had a woman who, who was driven, cared for people, wanted diversity at the top of the team. And she took mm. the initiative to make this happen. She's on the executive. She was back then on the executive committee of Bayer. Um, and uh, so it started with NBD, which does not mean that it cannot expand to other parts of Bayer. And I'm sure uh, our teams are working to figure out if it makes sense. Now, it's not superbly simple, right? Because you have mm. to have somebody that you can let go of for six to nine months. Like if you asked me for that, that's not an easy gift for me to yeah. send somebody from my team off onto something else. That's a very tough decision in certain teams that are running at the pace of whatever mm-hmm. they're running at, right? So you really need to sit down with your manager, understand whether there's flexibility to spare you for six to nine months. And occasionally teams do have that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might have a lull in projects um, and this could be a perfect solution to never let your talent get underserved. So in terms of the criteria for this program, how does it decide almost which underrepresented groups are involved? Is this just for women or does this take into account sort of sexuality and race and what you mentioned earlier, socioeconomic background? Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so in the present version, right, which is um, which is running in business development, we're really getting people that are that are not sort of typically at the start of their careers. They have some expertise in what they are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of a ground level. They they need to be able to contribute to business development from their functional expertise at a certain point. So it's really a selection process, right? So we and these candidates have to be senior managers and above already. Um, mm-hmm. We could uh, reframe this program for entry level, and we do have some other initiatives that help with that. Uh, but the current IND uh, is deemed to be for senior managers and above. Uh, you mm-hmm. select based on the needs of your team, on the needs of the candidate, and you certainly look at women. And then diversity from various other angles as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a fantastic program. I can't wait to kind of see how it grows and expands and see other companies taking on initiatives such as this. It's incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, the the whole kind of vision behind this was to expose these candidates to something that they may not have known a lot about and to propel these candidates into then their next stage of career um, you know, uh, give them exposure to senior leadership stakeholders that they may not routinely have had in their mm-hmm. earlier roles. And, you know, three or four of our um, key talent that came through this are doing some fantastic work. Ilona Gucha, who joined my team um, uh, and is a superb example of this, is one. But we had a couple of uh, ladies that joined the new business development team and have not joined business development per se, but have gone on to fantastic roles in the broader finance world outside of BD. And, you know, maybe this this uh, inclusion and diversity program actually allowed them to recharge their track to get where they are. We have now a total, I think, of five graduates from the inclusion and diversity program, which started two years ago. Brilliant. It's so exciting. Um, it is. It's it's a, it's 
it's a very, um, you can do this. It's a small tool in some ways and people can do this. And I think different companies have maybe different versions of this, but this was really called out to fill this specific purpose. And that's a nice way of thinking about it. Definitely. And I think it's so encouraging to not only people that are working within Bayer or your department, but for other people and other women to kind of see that these initiatives are happening and that people are really listening and doing something about this. And I'm just curious, slightly stepping away from the specifics of the programme, as a whole industry in terms of business development within the pharmaceutical industries, I think when you typically talk about business or finance or economics, this is these are fields that are typically dominated by men. And I'm just wondering, are you still seeing this within the industry? Has this changed at all maybe in the last few years or is this still very much present? I think it's changing, Anna. You bring a great point. When I started, it was tremendously male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember some funny, not so funny, but, you know, in today's world, they would be entirely wrong. Um mm-hmm commentary at that time right so it used to be very male dominated I think it's evolving um, Mm -hmm. primarily because women now uh, you know really are there and they're coming in from different roles and climbing up their ladder albeit slowly I think we still have a lot of gaps to Mm -hmm. make up Um, but they are there and you're seeing women in the business development world, you're seeing them clearly in the CFO world, Um, Mm -hmm. you're seeing them clearly in economics in different places, they're still lower. So if you go to a venture capital conference, for example, Anna, the women will be far fewer than the men. You get into a room full of CFOs, women are nowhere near 50%, right? So a long way to go, but making inroads, um, and especially in the biological sciences, I'm no expert on the stats, Anna, but I would say mm-hmm. it's a little more favorable in the biological uh, sciences world, the pharma biotech world. But you still have rooms full of men, and there is mm-hmm. a lot of effort going on, I think, at the board level to say, you know, should we bring in more diverse mindsets into our rooms? Um so slowly but steadily, hopefully the, the needle's moving in the right direction and all each of us can do a lot more to help that. Definitely. Why do you think that in particular this sort of industry maybe is harder for women or within sort of the financial world? Why? What are the main challenges do you think that women are finding to break into this? Obviously, we've said that it's growing and it it is getting better, but, you know, we still haven't reached full gender parity across the board. So I'm just curious about what you think the main challenges are. Well, I'm going to go into some generalities and I or stereotypes, and I'm not sure that we should um, extend them for too many more years. But Mm -hmm. earlier in uh, like if you, you know, knock back seven, eight years, um, These are roles that needed a little bit of hard backbone, strong voices. Um, They were just roles that you typically were used to seeing men, men that were 
very clear about what they wanted or didn't want and that were willing to put a stake in the ground in a much more binary fashion than women were known to do in the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Over time, of course, that that stereotype shouldn't work too long. Women know what they want. Women can speak what they want. Women can deliver what's needed. So just the, the sort of the male stereotype versus the woman's stereotype has something to do with the past. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, I would say actually women may be more nuanced in negotiation styles. They may be softer in certain areas and sharper in certain areas. But again, we're really generalizing, Anna, so we need to be careful. Yeah. Both course. men and women have a superb role to play in all these functions. The question is, why do these functions typically attract more men uh, than women? One of the pieces in finance, for example, Anna, was long working hours, right? They were killer working hours in investment banks, et cetera, where you went home at 11 p.m. every night. Women may have personally not chosen those careers looking at those long hours. Um, Maybe their home support system was not enough for them to choose those careers, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So a lot of this plays into the why of of where we are today. And why we're evolving today is as we grow and realize that the women in the workforce have to be able to contribute more and want to contribute more, uh, things are evolving around us to help us. Mm, mm, Definitely. Um, But, you know, it's certainly nowhere near where it should be. No. Certainly no venue it should be. I mean, the uh, the World Economic Forum in 2022 was speaking to the fact that gender parity is not yet recovering and that it will take uh, probably another 100 to 130 years to wow. get there from a global gender gap perspective, right? Um, which is a scary thing as you think about that all, is scary. <laughs> all the girls and women in in school, in industry, at home, uh, how do we bring them any closer to where we should be, right? Definitely, definitely, especially with, you know, much wider political issues in terms of girls being banned from education in Afghanistan and situations like that. It's it's incredibly shocking, I think, to most people that that's happening now when, as you've said, we've got 100 or 130 years to reach gender equality. And yeah. and I think that COVID was not helpful to uh, the gender um, ratio as well. I mean, there was a law, generational loss that occurred between 2020 and 21. We were starting to become a little better and then were set back a little bit. So complex topic. Um, and each of us should truly look around us in our little ecosystems to see what we can do to help each other raise um not only awareness, but small constructive steps that we can do around us to uplift women in our communities, girls in our schools, and definitely in our corporations. Definitely. It's sort of a more community-driven change rather than, you know, you can't sort of tackle a whole system at once. Well, I mean, I think the systems are making the right noises, Anna, right? Mm. It's very deep and fundamental, so it needs to come from all. It needs to come from down and through the roots of the system and homes, and it needs to come from the boards and mm-hmm. political systems. So it needs to be grassroots 
top down and bottoms up to allow this needle to move. And I guess just taking a future look on that, how do you think that the next sort of five to 10 years, I mean, I guess that's a small time frame now to the 100 years of timescale that you've given me, but what do you think the next few years or what do you hope the next few years will look like for women in science and this gender parity? Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, in the biological sciences, I think women are doing well um, or better than certain other sciences, potentially, or technology, for sure. Um, I think we need to encourage these women in academia to find landing spots if they want to stay in research. I think more can be done there, although the pipeline is decent of PhD students, right? Um, I think VCs can do more to attract women uh, from scientific backgrounds and, you know, sort of bring them uh, to par in the VC world. Um, Mm -hmm. Women entrepreneurs are absolutely out there and they're trying hard to raise funding. Um, They should be paid attention to. And, you know, all this does not happen, Anna, without support. One of the things that struck me as you started introducing your podcast or the idea of your podcast is, Mm. uh, you know, we need to take a risk on women. Yeah, maybe they, maybe you don't have thousands of perfect women for your next role, right? Take a risk on them, give them the support they need to grow into those roles. Mm. Um, And that's where you get this person that's more finished for you, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, not all men succeed, so why can't women fail? What is this where we we can't take risks on women? Uh, we took risks on men for the last hundreds of years, right? Start yeah. taking risks on women now and, and help them get where they can get to because they clearly have superb potential. Um, so a little bit of this has to happen. In the science world, you know, I... Uh, a shout out to a dear friend of mine who got something called the Infosys Award for uh, Innovative Science in India recently and was, uh, uh, you know, was at the award ceremony. Um, and it's one of the most prestigious science awards uh, in mm. India, this Infosys Award, Vidita Vaidya. And she works on childhood stress and, um, you know, the, the impact of serotonin levels on future adult mental outcomes. But it takes. It took her a long time of saying doggedly true to her passion to mm. get there. And there were many roadblocks even in the Indian systems along her way, right? Mm. Uh, mm. So it takes a little bit more, I think, from mm. women to get where they have to get to. Uh, and we've got to reduce that stress. We have to reduce yeah. that need for perfection, that, that extra edge that women have to bring to these roles. I think it's really interesting that you've kind of brought up that idea of failure and that actually that allows people to grow and I think obviously you can't generalize too much but I think women on the whole are quite scared of failure in you know not just in aspects of their career but in their life and I think that's a really important message actually to kind of drive to people that failure is actually kind of an opportunity for growth and it's opportunity to develop more So I think that's a a really lovely point that you made. It absolutely is. And, you know, women lead differently. Um, We had a tendency in the past years that if you saw a woman at the top, she was 
you know, maybe a bit harder, a bit tougher, because she had to sort of stand alone in a man's world. I think and I hope we can change that and bring our more authentic selves to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing wrong with a leader who has a little more empathy or talks mm-hmm. about joy in her children's homework mess ups, right? Instead mm-hmm. of the football game last night. That's totally mm-hmm. okay. And we should be allowed to color ourselves in the way that we choose to mm-hmm. present ourselves. And I think there was a little bit of hesitancy perhaps in, again, the stereotype of the woman 30 years ago. And today's woman hopefully can allow herself to bring all of herself to work, which is a very rich self. I think actually... um that's something I've seen in the Prime Minister of New Zealand when she Ooh, yes. stepped down and but was so graceful and she was a fantastic leader and she sort of knew that she couldn't deliver anymore and there was no sense of her having to feel the need to continue to lead. She knew that she'd already done her part and I think was incredibly graceful about it. Oh, and I think that's a prime, prime example of how women can lead. A fantastic example. I mean, we have to doff our hat to her and she... She allowed herself to do what she thought was right at that particular moment. Exactly. Well, this has been such a fantastic conversation to have with you, Deepa. Thank you. And I just have one last question for you that I'll be asking all my interviewees. But is there any other female leader currently within this industry that you are particularly inspired by? Ah, I mean, Anna, in terms of, uh, <laughs> uh, we, you know, we clearly, uh, we spoke about Marianne de Bacco, who, mm-hmm. who uh, was partly the reason I came to Bear in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, it's amazing to see her in action. Um, and now that she's the CEO of Veer, we wish her the absolute best. Uh, but she's clearly somebody that's... Um, a mover and a shaker and a role model for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I I started uh, early in my life having good role models around me uh, and women. My mom was a stellar stellar in all her roles. Went back to school, mm-hmm. you know, she was uh, a marine biologist, and she went back to school after her kids were ten years old or whatever. And I still think of it today and shiver because I don't have it mm-hmm. today in me. <laughs> Um, a mom was like that, um, you know, very early in life, Marie Curie, uh, Madame Curie, uh, was an inspiration. I mean, here's a woman who who sat down and doggedly solved one of the mysteries of uh, chemistry, within chemistry, right? So in, yeah. in that sense, um, there are women who've gone out and beyond and exist all around us in industry. I, I mentioned Marianne is one, but there's several others that are are there and leading us on um, to greater things. Um, Indra Nui, who mm. was the CEO of Pepsi for a long time, broke a lot of cultural and gender barriers to get mm. where she got to and got there with grace as well. Mm. Um, so we're blessed to have a few, but there's not a lot <laughs> Anna, that you know, you come across on your daily journey. No, but definitely but more to come. Definitely more to come. And one key key thing is to allow women to have that early exposure to leadership, which I don't think we do enough of, and to give them roles for six to nine months 
where they're working with male and female leaders very early in their life so they can use those experiences to shape what they need in the future. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Deepa. It's been great to speak with you and I hope that you've enjoyed being here today. Thank you, Anna. Super appreciate it. So that was our first episode of Voices of Biotech. Next month, we are joined by Olona Gutcher, who is the Director of Business Development and Licensing Oncology at Bayer. So catch us next month to see what she has to say.